Thanks so much for joining us. Hopefully you are all sufficiently fed and slightly caffeinated. Uh, there are really two related sets of questions in the immigration debate today. The first set of questions has to do with who gets in and who doesn't, who is allowed to stay and who should be required to go. Mm. And the second set of questions is related to the first, but it has to do with the question of assimilation, integration, incorporation. And the questions involve whether or not today's immigrants are integrating into U.S. society. What kinds of Americans will they become? What kind of Americans will their children and grandchildren become? And this second set of questions is incredibly relevant to our everyday lives. It's embedded in where we choose to live. It's embedded in decisions we make about where to go to school, who we choose as friends and romantic partners. It shapes the kind of foods we eat, the kind of music we listen to, the languages we speak. It shapes our perceptions of group difference and similarity. And it's this second set of questions, the question related to assimilation, that we will be discussing in the next hour. And I'm joined by a distinguished panel. Uh, and before I introduce the distinguished panel, I'm going to introduce uh, myself. Yeah. Which maybe I should. Well, you are a part of the distinguished panel. Uh, well, I'd like to think so. But, uh, uh, my name's Tomas Jimenez. I am an assistant professor in the sociology department at Stanford University. I'm also an Irvine fellow at the New America Foundation. And I've been told by my distinguished panel that I have to plug my newly published book, uh, which is called Replenished Ethnicity, Mexican-Americans, Immigration and Identity, and it is now available from the University of California Press. Uh, and so... When did it come out, Tomas? Well, it... it <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you guys are really, you guys are really, uh, it, it came out on Monday. It was yeah. available on Monday. So this is, uh, it's like holding a new book. Okay. You're very kind. You're very kind. So let me introduce, uh, introduce my panel, uh, starting on your far right with Dal Myers. Dal Myers is a professor of urban planning and demography at the University of Southern California. He's well known as a specialist in demographic trends and in the relation to all areas of policy and planning. He's been a long-standing advisor with the U.S. Census Bureau, and he's author of perhaps the most widely referenced text on census analysis. His newest book, Immigrants and Boomers, Forging a New Social Contract for the Future of America, argues that immigrant integration is essential to California and indeed the nation's prosperity. Dr. Myers also leads the USC California Demographic Futures Research Project, which focuses on among other issues, mobility, the mobility of uh, immigrants uh, and their integration into the U.S. and in Southern California. And I should mention that I've asked all of the panelists to bring copies of their book. Richard was the only one who remembered, but, but I, I would strongly endorse Dowell's, uh, Dowell's latest experience. Uh, in the middle here, we have Peggy Levitt, who is a professor of sociology at Wellesley College and a research fellow at the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs. And the, universe, and the Hauser Center uh, for Nonprofit Organizations at Harvard University, where she co-directs the Transnational Studies Initiative. She has been a guest professor at numerous universities uh, throughout Europe, uh, most recently at the University of Malmo, and before that, the University of Bologna. 
She'll be a uh, visiting professor in 2010 and 2012 uh, in Amsterdam. And Peggy, you said you'd help me pronounce the name? At Fry University in Amsterdam. She's the author and editor of several books, including God Needs No Passport, Immigrants and the Changing American Religious Landscape, The Transnational Studies Reader, and The Changing Face of Home, The Transnational Lives of the Second Generation. Oh, and finally, sorry, The Transnational Villagers from the University of California Press. Uh, Professor Levitt is also a filmmaker. Uh, Her film, Art Across Borders, came out earlier this year. And finally, we have uh, Professor Richard Alba. He's a distinguished professor of sociology at the City University of New York Graduate Center. He has published a series of books and articles that have had a profound influence on the theoretical and empirical work in modern sociology. His areas of specialization are sociology and demography of migration, race and ethnicity, and urban sociology. Professor Alba is considered one of the top demographers in the nation, as well as a theorist and conceptual innovator who has made major contributions to the understanding of ethnicity, assimilation, and segregation. He is also the author and editor of numerous books, including Remaking the Mainstream, which considers how assimilation unfolds in the contemporary period, and Blurring the Color Line, A New Chance for a More Integrated America, (laughs) which offers both analysis and suggestions for how to create a more equal United States. And we're going to run the panel a little bit differently than the first panel today. Uh, I have a series of questions that I will direct at one of our panelists and then invite the others to weigh in. And we're going to try and keep it more like a conversation. And I'm going to direct the first question at Richard Alba. Uh, Richard, the title of our panel, which is, uh, is assimilation still a bad word, suggests that the term assimilation comes with some baggage. Uh, So help us answer this question. Is assimilation still a bad word? Was it ever a bad word, and uh, why? Okay, well, uh, before I do that, I just want to thank Gregory Rodriguez and his team for bringing me here to the Zocalo panel. um, I'm sure it's going to be a lot of fun, although I have to say that um, coming after the group before us does present us with certain challenges, but we hope to rise up. Yeah, I think it's been a bad word, and I think it still is a a very controversial word. And I think there are probably two different reasons for that. And one is, uh, I think we heard in some of the questions that came in the preceding session, that there's a real tension in the word, when the word assimilation is employed, between the normative, what ought to be, and then the real, what happens. Um, And... um, You know, as a social scientist, I prefer to think that I'm studying the real, what what really goes on in the outside world. But um, it is, I think, with any of these concepts, impossible to completely eliminate uh, their normative aspects. That's one one reason. I think another reason is that we've inherited a bad concept of assimilation from the past. And, and, you know, I'll probably come back to this at various points, but I think that um, in some sense we've cut ourselves off from a deeper understanding of the past and it's kind of, it's impoverished our imaginations a bit. Um, And so assimilation has been translated into a concept of kind of coerced conformity. 
A, you're forced, and B, you've got to conform to some kind of, you know, whatever it is, some uh, homogeneous um, American ideal. Um, and I would like to say that I don't think that if we look at the reality of how assimilation unfolds, that in fact it by and large has had that character of coerced conformity. Noah Pickus earlier referred to you know an, to the sort of Anglo conformity understanding of assimilation, um, which reigned in the United States perhaps up through the early part of the 20th century. But that that's really pretty far behind us. And I think that um, as we look at the way assimilation has worked out over the last century, um, I think we could often say that it's kind of, it comes about, it's often unintended, it's inadvertent, it's the kinds of decisions um, that people make when they're really making other plans besides assimilation. You know, they're, they're intending to better their lives, uh, to get more education, to get a better job, to get a house, to put their children into a better neighborhood. And it's in the process of doing the things that are necessary to carry out those decisions that a lot of assimilation, um, in fact, occurs. I also think that we suffer from a model of assimilation that comes from the strong kind of racial focus of our understandings about these matters today. And Gary Gerstel brought up the matter of religion, and in that sense, you know, I'm going to have to kind of... He anticipated some of what I want to say, but, but I think he also prepared the way. And I think he's right in saying that we've forgotten about this part of the story. And this part of the story produces a very different idea of assimilation because when the Jews and Catholics became a part of the American mainstream, they did not do it by becoming Protestants. They did not do it by submerging and making less visible their identities. So there is another way of thinking about the assimilation as a kind of expanding mainstream, which allows room for a kind of more diverse set of identities. And, and the, so is, relig is assimilation in the future going to be assimilation along the race, racial model? We all have to become white, which we know isn't possible, or is it going to be assimilation along the religion model, which allows this kind of plurality of identities within the mainstream? That, I think, is a critical question. Thank you. Well, I also want to uh, thank you very much for the invitation to be here, and, and thank you all for staying. Um, I, I don't have too much to add to what Richard has said and what's already been said by the other panelists. Um, in the sense, I think that we're all interested in um, making sure that immigrants succeed, and it's not so important what we call that or you know, what the journey is, but actually how we get to the, when we get to the destination, that this destination looks like mobility and uh, equality across socioeconomic status, across uh, spatial um, integration, across language, and across intermarriage. Um, so uh, I, I do think, though, that it's interesting to think about, um, you know, racial, uh, racial assimilation as opposed to religious assimilation, because I think it's always been um, easier to be uh, different religiously in this country than it, we've always been allowed people to express their religious difference in this country um, much more easily than uh, that we've tolerated differences in race and ethnicity. And so, for example, the Italian immigrants who went to uh, uh, Argentina became 
you know, anarchists and the Italian immigrants who came to the United States became ardent Catholics because that was a way to be American, but also to, you know, also express your difference that was more tolerated. So I think we have to now start thinking about uh, if we're going to uh, explore this idea about assimilation along religious lines, we have to start thinking about the, the uh, thinking outside that kind of Christian model and see what that would look like. I would just add. I would just add that assimilation is a word, and what are the alternatives? It's a broad concept, and it needs to be qualified with two-way street or how, how you have it. But what are the alternatives? You know, we've been using the last decade accommodation, acculturation, adaptation, adjustment, absorption. Those are all the A words, and then two I words: uh, incorporation, integration. But to the average person, if you don't say assimilation. They won't know what you're talking about. So you almost have to use the word and then qualify it. So, and it's changing. So really there's an old-fashioned assimilation that people still rail against, but none of us is talking about that today. And there's a new fashion one that I think Richard and his uh, co-author group for me have defined for us. And, uh, but yeah, I'll leave it at that. The, the word is an important umbrella concept. needs to be qualified. Dow, let's let's stick with you, and in, in the spirit of, of Richard's call to, uh, or Richard's observation that, that social scientists look at reality, uh, paint for us a picture of the reality today in terms of, and, and the, for the sake of consistency, immigrant assimilation. Uh, what do things look like today in terms of whether or not immigrants are assimilating? Well, you know, first off, it's a process, a process in time, and it's obviously we're not done, we're not there yet. And in fact, time will never be done because it's a moving target. If there's assimilation in society, well, all of society is also changing. Every decade we get new gadgets and gizmos that change the way we, relate, we interrelate with each other, new technologies of production. So it's a moving target and it's not something that will ever be completed. What I always wonder is why uh, do people say that immigrants are not assimilating? What do you mean? Why do they say not assimilating? I mean, it's really, the state is much better, Tomas, much better today than you would hear in the news media or anywhere else. And uh, in my book, I spent some time trying to figure out what is it that makes people say that. And I say that it comes down to this. It comes down to having so many newcomers. When immigration is a new event, the way it is in many parts of America, like North Carolina and Georgia, not Chicago, not New York, and not Los Angeles, but the rest of the country where you hear lots of commotion about immigration, it's a new event. And because it's new, all the people who are there are new. And if you're new, guess what that means? You haven't had time to assimilate very much. Mm-hmm. And so they see all these people and they see growing numbers of Spanish speakers and they say, oh my God, they're not assimilating. Come on. You know, I mean, what do you think? <laughs> they don't know. They just don't know. And so I think that leads to a, a fairly negative assessment uh, in many quarters. And it's just because uh, it hasn't had time. In California, we, we have a lot longer experience with, with immigration, and there it's really obvious how much people change over time. And it's shocking, the, the facts. I just have a couple I like to cite always. And I like to talk about uh, Latinos uh, who are immigrants in California. They're usually the poorest when they arrive. And the shocking fact is after they, uh, the average Latino immigrant has been in California for 20 years, you know, which is a pretty expensive state, 20 years, 51% are homeowners. And after 30 years, 60% are homeowners. That's a fact you never hear because it tells a very promising story about immigrant upward mobility, and so it it doesn't get told as much. The scare stories focus on other things. And they're still speaking Spanish at home. 
okay, what's wrong with that? Uh, so there, there's different dimensions to um, the immigrant behavior, and many of them show enormous change in just um, 20 years' time. Um, by the way, the children of immigrants all speak English fluently in or out of the home whenever they want uh, in the second generation, and, and many of them still speak the mother tongue as well. So uh, I think the state of affairs is much better than is commonly assumed. So yeah, folks want to add to yeah, I do. what the picture looks like? Yeah, I do. Um, I, I, here I do want to sort of um, make specific things that have been alluded to by the, the previous panel, and I thought were really illustrated well by uh, Luis Alberto and, and Jose Luis, because I think there's a difference between um, an ethnic American experience or a hyphenated American experience, an experience of being um, a, a, an immigrant community, an ethnic group that uh, has shaped its customs within the American context. But what was being alluded to in a lot of the anecdotes that we heard was a, a transnational, what I would call a transnational experience. So when um, uh, uh, Luis Alberto <coughs> described the community of Kankiki, you know, and he talked. And he talked about the mayor going back to the, the, the community. I mean, that to me is an understanding that people are not only being mm -hmm. Mexican-American in the United States, but they have these very continued, uh, enduring economic and political and social involvements in their home community. And that when we talk about assimilation, or when we talk about social mobility, or when we talk about um, you know, uh, equal uh, education, we need to take that into account because that person who's trying to be economically mobile is often, not always, juggling an, an economic strategy that involves what's happening in their home community and their economic responsibilities in their home community and what's happening here. And that I hear that sort of alluded to in the conversation, but not often mm. taken seriously in how we think about um, how we frame our questions and then how we think about policy responses to them. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I, I agree with what you said. The one thing I would add, though, and as we think about assimilation is that um, as it has typically unfolded, we're talking about a multi-generational process, not something that in any sense we should expect to see uh, accomplished in, in, in the immigrant generation. It's also important to stress that there are multiple dimensions to assimilation, and assimilation can be moving you know, a lot faster along one set of dimensions then it's moving along another set of dimensions. I mean, the acquisition of English is a pretty quick process for in many immigrant families. In that sense, you could say there's some kind of linguistic assimilation going on. It doesn't really tell us very much about the other dimensions of assimilation. But the way I would define assimilation, really, and, and this sort of speaks also to the role of race in the United States, is it, it's the decline of kind of the, the ethno-racial factor as a determinant of people's experiences, um, and particularly as a kind of a, a decline in its ability to constrain their use of opportunities in, in the mainstream of the United States. And, you know, I think if, if there is a key to assimilation, and here I'm going back to the discussion that was held in the last time about, you know, what's the balance between, if you will, the kind of material side 
of, of in becoming American and the identity side of becoming American. And I agree that they're entangled and that they're mutually reinforcing. Nevertheless, it seems to me that we have to put the priority on the material side, on making sure that people have the opportunities to fully participate in mainstream institutions. Other folks want to comment on the mm -hmm. difference between the material side versus the sort of identity side and, and which we should be emphasizing? No? <laughs> That's an <laughs> invitation rejected there. Okay. Uh, well, well, Peggy Levitt. I, th I think this group won't hesitate to speak. So. Okay. <laughs> I, I didn't think so. Uh, Peggy Levitt, let, let's go to you. We often hear comparisons made <clears throat> between the mass wave of immigration that came at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century, overwhelmingly from Europe and, and Southern and Eastern Europe, and the wave of immigrants that's coming today, which comes overwhelmingly from Latin America, Asia, and uh, the Caribbean. And we hear some folks say that today's immigration is completely different, especially with respect to assimilation. And we hear other folks say that well, today's immigrants are really just the latest in a long line of uh, assimilating immigrant groups that have come to the United States. Help us sort this out. What's familiar here and, and what's new? I think you have a great future career as a news uh, oh, I, I'm, as, as the next Charlie Rose. I'm hoping. I, there we go. The Charlie Rose of sociology. We I, can see you now. I'm hoping I have a career as an academic. <laughs> Definitely. Do. You, when you get tired of them, you get tired of your day job, right? You better keep publishing those books. Yeah. Well, I think that we can safely say that there is nothing new under the sun. However, there are qualitative differences between the prior waves of immigration and, um, uh, and the current wave of immigration. So um, just thinking about this from the transnational perspective that I just posed to you, there was a lot of return migration uh, in the early 1900s. Uh, between uh, 1910 mm -hmm. and 1920, of every 100 immigrants who came to the country, about one-third returned. Uh, there was a lot of circular migration going on, so people moving for um, for uh, seasonal work and then going home. Uh, migrants then also sent lots of remittances and there were hometown clubs that did improvement projects and provided relief and communities. So in the Italian case, remittances were so high in the early 1900s that the secretary for the Society for the Protection of Italian Immigrants claimed that Italians in New York were contributing more to the tax rolls than Italians who were living in poor regions like in Calabria and in Sicily. And there were countries that also recognized immigrants as an important resource. So again, the Italian government was uh, supporting organizations, hometown organizations, to help immigrants abroad and working hard to prevent um, mistreatment of immigrant workers. Um, and also passed a, uh, a, a, law, a requirement that all the steamships that were going back to Italy retained a, a, um, a, a spot for indigent Italians who wanted to return home. So I think that there is, uh, th there, there is a lot of, of parallels between today and yesterday, but there are also significant differences. I think the proportion of people who are leaving their sending countries is generally higher than the numbers that migrated in the past. And clearly you have 
very you know, new communication and transportation technologies that permit people to be part of the same social and emotional space, even if they're separated by physical distance. So think of the difference of um, uh, between getting a letter with a photograph in it every three weeks and being able to be on Skype every day mm-hmm. or being able to get a video of the baptism or the, um, or the marriage or the, the uh, fiesta patronal that took place. Um, it, that means that people are able to feel like they can be part of the communities that, that they come from on a daily basis and, and be involved in um, the, their household, raise children across borders, even to that extent. I think uh, people are also leaving countries at a different stage in nation building. So people from Italy or, or Poland didn't know that they were Italian or Polish until the priest direct addressed them as Italians or Polish from the pulpit during mass. And, um, sending, and sending country governments are really reaching out to immigrants in a, in a much more um, uh, uh, purposeful and, and, and um, uh, systematic way. So they knew that they were there before, but they wanted them to come home. Now I think they're realizing that people are going to be long-term residents, long-term members without residents, and that they need them very much. And that's in a large measure because of remittances. So in 2006, $68 billion, $68 billion of remittances went to Latin America, and $280 billion were generated worldwide. $3.3 billion went to, back to El Salvador, of a, in, and that's in a country of 7 million, so that's 18.2% of the gross domestic product, and one out of every five uh, families were receiving money from abroad. So lots of countries are, are, know that they need to make sure that this continues, and so one, 91 out of 106 uh, 186 countries are allowing the expatriate vote, and 84 offer dual citizen, and they're, you know, realizing that they are so dependent that their uh, their budgets would sort of tank if these remittances stopped, and so um, they're they're using uh, the promise of future remittances as a. Um, as a guarantee for loans for countries for institutions like the IMF or the World Bank. Um, so then you see countries like Mexico, for example, mounting these programs like uh, the three for one program where they're, they're uh, matching remittances um, that immigrants send at the national and the uh, state and the provincial and the local level. Now also people who are coming here are different. There are people of color. We talked about religious diversity. There's a bifurcation between uh, lots of low-skilled non-English speakers and also um, very highly uh, educated professionals who are coming. And the economy that they're entering into is certainly different. It's not this industrializing manufacturing economy. So it's good for high-tech workers and service workers and not necessarily good for people with low skills. Mm -hmm. And people are moving to new destinations. So um, it's not just gateway cities like Chicago and New York and Los Angeles anymore. It's very rural areas that haven't known diversity. <coughs> and they're, but on the whole, as we've been discussing, people are moving into a much more tolerant uh, country that, where multiculturalism is sort of the, 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 the name of the game uh, the, and the word of the day. Mm. Richard Amler, Del Myers, anything old, anything new we should be thinking about? Well, on, well, on the European question, I just, there's only one thing I ever think about, which is the incredible turnaround that's happened in Europe. You think about it. Chicago here was the 
the catch basin for Europe's overflow. They had so many people turn the century and not enough land and they came to America. And now it's reversed. And now Europe is shrinking. Their mm-hmm. population is shrinking and they're begging people to move into Europe. Immigration, immigrants are going toward Europe now. So it's, uh, that's the total reversal. Mm-hmm. The world is changing in Europe. The world's changing in America. Uh, and it's all part of a, these moving parts. And many people who resist immigration actually are resisting the, the world. They, they want to stop change. Mm-hmm. And they're looking for some lever to pull, any lever they could pull. And if you give them any chance to pull a lever, they'll stop uh, construction for white homeowners in California. They'll pull that lever. And they'll stop immigrants at the border. They can pull the lever. They want to stop change. And yet, change, change is going forward, and we work with it proactively and we get much better results. If we resist it, you lose. Mm. Richard, okay, well, yeah, so I'd like to sort of add to what people have said. And um, if Peggy's cliche was, there's nothing new under the sun, then my cliche will be, well, history doesn't repeat itself exactly. Um, so, of course, you know, there's, there are big differences between the contemporary situation and, and the past. And the idea that it's just going to be a replication of what happened in the past is, is silly. But it's also silly to say, in my opinion, well, the past has nothing to do with the present. We can ignore the past because the question then for us really should be what lessons do we learn from the past that we might carry over into the present and and the near future? And I think there are some lessons. And um, so I'm going to sort of promote the book a little bit by saying that um, in the book I argue that... um, a key lesson is that assimilation can really be accelerated if the conditions are right in the larger society. And um, I argue that in, in, in the immediate post-World War II period, the conditions were right for what a kind of non-zero-sum mobility. That is to say that you know, Catholics and Jews could move up without really threatening the kind of the position of Protestants. The Protestants still had the same opportunities as before. Well, something similar could happen in the near future. As Dowell and I have written about, the baby boom is going to retire. There are going to be fewer whites in the cohorts coming of age to replace all those whites in the baby boom who are retiring. So there's a kind of space opening up. And how that space gets used, you know, and whether it's used to help contemporary minorities who are present as opposed to new immigrants to move up, I think is a big question for the U.S. and will have a big impact on on assimilation. One of the things that uh, I didn't hear mentioned or at least not emphasized is the role of legal status. Mm -hmm. And and this in the immigration debate is the elephant in the room. And and again, I think most people uh, talk about legal status in reference to the first set of questions that I talked about, who should get in, who should be allowed to stay, and that sort of thing. But I think there's also some serious implications for assimilation. Absolutely. And I'm wondering if, uh, in terms of what's old and what's new, if we can talk a little bit about the role that legal status might play and, and how assimilation plays out. Well, that's certainly a difference from the past. I mean, there's certainly, there, there's no question there were uh, undocumented immigrants, but only at the very end really, of the period of mass immigration from Europe. They were few in number, and they were treated rather leniently. I mean, May Nye's book uh, makes, that, makes that very clear. Yeah. And I think the, you know, for, for assimilation, because it's a multi-generational process, um, we have to ask about the separate generations that are affected by undocumented status. What does it mean when you have parents 
who are undocumented, what does it mean when you are undocumented and you've grown up in the United States and you are socially and culturally um, an American? And I think both are meaningful. I mean, I think it's becoming clear from uh, the work that uh, Frank Bean and Susan Brown and others are doing that growing up in a family where one or both parents are undocumented has real negative consequences, even when you yourself are born in the United States and are therefore uh, an American citizen. Um, but, you know, personally, I think that it's intolerable to imagine that we have probably four million, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a big number, really, of, of young people who've grown up here, um, have gone to American schools, cannot possibly return uh, to their home countries and are still, you know, in an undocumented status. So, you know, we have to hope, <laughs> but I don't know whether this is an audacious hope or not. You know, we have to hope that, that uh, the political process will get around to dealing with this. However, I have to say that I'm no longer very optimistic. And, you know, I think that um, it's the, the last months i mean the, the you know the period of the obama administration to date makes clear that there's enormous resistance to any aspect of the democratic agenda and the political cost for the healthcare reform has been so enormous that i i'm i'm very doubtful that immigration reform is going to be taken up anytime soon so in that way i'm pessimist peggy or dowell would want to say anything about the role of legal status well i I won't, speak, I won't speak to the matter of optimism or not. I, I'm, I am more optimistic, though. But I think the, uh, the studies in New York and in L.A. show that uh, children who grow up in families where there is a, a sustained unauthorized status um, suffer 10 to 15 percent, is their estimate, mm-hmm. in terms of their adult achievements later on because of that, that status. And that's not good. Furthermore, what I worry about politically is that if you have a group of people who are not allowed to participate in the system, they become disengaged. Mm-hmm. And you develop a whole culture, a mm-hmm. subculture of disengagement where the children never see their, kid, their, their, um, their parents go into the voting booth, never see that. They never pay attention to any elections because they're not allowed to do that. And that's not good. Mm-hmm. That's not good for a democracy like ours. And then the third problem there is it undermines our cohesion. And so by mm-hmm. retarding this incorporation, you actually get the, the reverse of what you would hope for, I guess, by making things worse. And so I, I think we're in this suspended animation right now, mm-hmm. trying to figure out which way do we go. And there really is no choice. Uh, because, as President Bush said before he left office, we're never going to deport 12 million people. Mm-hmm. So then, you, then you're, that's your choice. <clears throat> your choice is that 12 million disengaged people Mm-hmm. who are not performing as well as they could at a time when we're going to need everybody, all hands on deck to perform. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why we can't get political leadership to stand up and say that. It's as simple as that. I, mm-hmm. I might just also add that I often talk to people who uh, say that their uh, immigrant grandparents or great-grandparents came here the right way and they wonder why today's immigrants <laughs> can't come here the right, right. way. And, and as backdrop to what everyone yeah just said, it might be important to note that our country's immigration laws, uh, so long as you uh, weren't from Asia, were uh, pretty lenient Mm -hmm. uh, for most of our history up until really 1917, 21, 24. But Mm -hmm. it was was actually difficult to come illegally back Mm -hmm. then. Uh, The laws were fairly lax. All you had to do Mm -hmm. was show up at Ellis Island and prove you didn't have some kind of communicable disease. And it was only about 2% who had something like that, and you could stay. 
Uh, and so the game changed radically in 1924, and, and the yeah. pathways for people to come legally have um, progressively narrowed over time. So, um, mm-hmm. so that's something that I, that I think is important to keep uh, mm-hmm. in mind in terms of backdrop to what everyone mm-hmm. said. But, but certainly um, illegal immigration, the issue of unauthorized, illegal, undocumented immigration is as much an issue of, about immigration as it is about immigrant integration or assimilation. Uh, Del Myers, as you're getting a new microphone here, let me let me go to you. Uh, he exhausted his microphone already. <laughs> <laughs> Jimi Hendrix used to wear out guitars. Del Myers yeah. wears out. Watch out! I'll break out my harmonica next. That's right. Del Myers does play in a blues band. Plays the harmonica. But but let's go to you. Richard Alba articulated two different ways of thinking about the the term assimilation, and one was a a normative way of thinking about it, and one was a descriptive way of thinking about it, and I want to kind of go into the world of the normative version. What should we be aiming for in terms of immigrant assimilation? What's the ideal? What's the ideal? Oh, boy. Um, You know, if you look at it in the the full view, it's really a, a chance to have the best of all worlds. All worlds. I mean that literally, all worlds. I mean, uh, I have like four points here I could probably lay out. One would be how much you could invigorate the American lifestyle, where we would get the best of everything. We're going to have a, a, infusion, a new infusion of family values, a new infusion of, of hard work and industriousness, a new in, infusion of, um, of ingenuity and creativity, invention, um, more artistic creativity, um, more players for the NBA. Did I mention that? Yeah. Major League Baseball. <laughs> I, I'm intrigued by, you know, we have Frenchmen playing in, in Texas and Germans playing in Texas and even the big Chinaman, Yao Ming. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's all these great things that come to America and they've assimilated into NBA and uh, we adopt lots of their practices as well. One thing that comes from immigrants also, I think, there's so many different contributions, is a new emphasis on academic scholarship. Some of our greatest uh, thinkers and, and scholars are, are, are immigrants. So I think I'd like to see that embraced. All the good things that can come by the best from, the best from all the world. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, equally important in my goal here, if I had a goal, would be it w- there would be um, equal participation and full access and inclusion as part of the definition and goal for uh, assimilation. It wouldn't just be the things that we get in America from immigrants, but they themselves would have lowered barriers, no barriers to participation. And then along with that, I think the ideal goal, I think would have to be um, a freedom to continue, if they chose, with their own distinctive cultures. Mm -hmm. It's an option to be preserved and to be cherished. And I think that might be my third plank in the ideal ideal goal. And then I think the final thing I would say is that um, if we did this and we adopted each other's best traits, what we would have in America is a recombination. And what we're going to see, it is a moving target. Our society is evolving so rapidly that we're going to be generating new cultures and new lifestyles in America. And that's why people want to come here. Because the exciting new things are being created in America. And a lot of that, from Broadway plays down to um, 
to uh, the newest cuisine. A lot of that comes from the immigrants who are contributing, and it's happening here in America. I wouldn't call that a melting pot or a salad bowl, but I'd call it one heck of a good place to live. Are you loving or Richard But there is some blending going on here. You know, I think that in terms of the cultural creativity of the United States, that it very much comes. Um, it's, it's not so much the product of a single ethnic community as it is kind of elements coming together from the mainstream and ethnic communities and generating sort of new forms of cultural expression. And, you know, I think in America is, in some sense, the cultural leader of, of, of the world with its films and its elect, electronic software and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what should we think? Well, I agree with Dell that the emphasis should be put on... on um, Access to opportunities, that that's really the crux of the matter. And I'm very wary of trying to, in some sense, provide, have a normative notion that requires people um, to change their identities, to give up aspects of the things that they brought with them. They may well do those things. I mean, but I think that there is something fundamental here about American individualism. That that's why people, in part why people come here, that they, you know, they think they can lead in the United States the life that they choose. And that's something that all of us see as kind of a rock-solid aspect of our society. And I don't think we should uh, try to take that away from immigrants, actually. So that's... I think part of why this becomes such a difficult discussion is because we don't we talk about rights, we don't talk about responsibilities. And but we can't talk about immigrants' responsibilities without talking about native born responsibilities as well. So you can't hold mm-hmm. immigrants to a higher standard right. of political participation than you do native born people. Last presidential election, there was a lot of participation, but if you look at the participation rates before, immigrants aren't any less um, participatory than the native-born, and the, the you know the turnout rates are often quite low. And I think this is very much a two-way street. So you know the most poignant interviews that I did for uh, in, when I was writing "God Needs No Passport" is with uh, Pakistani immigrants who were very well-off, professional, successful leaders in their communities who, after September 11th in particular, felt like this, what had, they had assumed was an unconditional welcome mat had been you know, taken out from under them and now were being uh, uh, you know, surveilled at airports and uh, viewed suspiciously. And this was a devastating experience. They started sending money back to bank accounts in Pakistan, and it wasn't only happening, the word of this wasn't only spreading among Pakistanis in the United States, but was also spreading in the living rooms of the Pakistanis back home, and not doing very much for our diplomatic standing. So, I, I and and then the, the, the third point I want to make is that if we're interested in, you know, sort of bolstering American values, or what we all think is the core of what puts us together, when you know, in my conversations with immigrants, yes, about religious life. Yes, there are you know, hot-button issues like abortion or homosexuality that gets everybody you know, riled up, but most people care much more about things like education and housing and you know, safe streets and, and taking care of elderly and you know, strong families, which are, you know, if that's not American values, then I don't know what American values are. 
Mm-hmm. Just to go back to something that Dal Meyer said, one of the more delicious creations that have come about as a result of immigration uh, is in L.A. And, and Sokolo Public Square actually highlighted uh, the Korean taco truck. In Los Angeles, if you ever have an opportunity you're in, and you're in L.A., visit the Korean taco truck. They actually had its creator uh, give a really interesting talk about what authentic Mexican food is. Mm. You have to check his Twitter account to find out when it happens. But it is the, literally the, the sort of melding of Mexican and, and Korean food, perhaps the most obvious example of of what's created, mm-hmm. but but let's get serious again here. Um, that pr- sounded serious. I, I, was, I was serious about it. It's quite good. Um, <laughs> the, the previous panel talked about the idea that there are some places in the United States that are now majority-minority, and in fact, immigration is changing the face of the United States. The census estimates that uh, show that one in ten counties in the United States today is majority minority. Richard Alba, what does the changing face of the United States mean for our understanding of race, uh, ethnicity, and and national belonging? Wow. Well, I I think it means many things, actually. So I'm only going to be able to kind of touch on a a few of them. Um, You know, I I think that um, there's already a sense of a kind of power shift going on in, in American society. Um, the election of Obama is unthinkable without the changing demography of the United States because, as we know, he only he got a minority of, of the white votes, so he could not have won um, without a large numbers of minority voters. And, of course, those numbers are going to continue going up in relation to the numbers of, of white voters. Um, and I think some of the, actually, I think some of the political phenomena that we see at the, of the moment, you know, the kind of uh, very strong uh, reaction from the teabaggers, um, the controversy over the census is in a way a reflection, you know, of this kind of power shift that, that there are people, uh, whites in particular, some whites, who are made extremely uncomfortable by, uh, by, by what's going on and are, and are responding in that way. Um, I, I think that um, we should remember, though, that this, too, has a kind of analogy in the past because it was the case in the past that <clears throat> um, many American big cities in the early 20th century were dominated by new immigrants and their children. They made up, you know, 70% or more of the populations of cities like uh, New York and Chicago and, um, and Cleveland. So this isn't an unheralded kind of development, you know, never, a never-before-seen development um, in American society. And I think if we look back, you know, at, at sort of the experience of those cities, that they became, in a way, leaders uh, in terms of developing the kind of uh, blended mainstream culture you know, that then spread out uh, to other parts of the United States. Think of humor, for example, American humor, which has always had a very strong kind of connection with ethnic origins um, in the U.S., and particularly with big city ethnic origins, like the popularity of Seinfeld, for example. It just seems to me a kind of remarkable statement about how, you know, in particular places, a, kind of, a, kind, a new kind of culture is created that blends ethnic and mainstream elements and then um, can spread out from, from that place. But finally, I guess I'd like to say that um, in thinking about the changing demography, we need to think also about the impact on the majority population. Well, I guess I've sort of mentioned that, but there's, there's some other uh, impacts on the majority population. And we tend to think in ter- of assimilation as 
this is what happens to the immigrant minorities. But it does also um, um, involve things that happen to the majority group. And I think one of the things that seems to me a certainty coming out of the changing demography is a, an increasing rate of racial intermarriage by whites. And we can already start to see this developing, that the rate of racial intermarriage, when we calculate it on the basis of whites rather than on the basis of minorities, is, is increasing. And, you know, there's a very simple kind of demographic principle, which as, you know, as the composition of eligibles changes, the composition of young people becomes more diverse then marital choices follow. That means that whites are going to be increasingly likely to marry outside the white group. With all that that then entails about greater integration within larger family settings, children growing up in racially mixed families. Um, And I think that's a big development that people haven't talked about or thought about that, but that I think is almost certainly coming. I think the most interesting development in this is just the the new destinations that, you know, so much of this increasing diversity is taking place in areas where uh, diversity like that was not known before. And because it's a small town and because there are not longstanding institutions that are used to helping immigrants integrate, um, you end up having a different kind of majority-minority relationship that might play out in very different ways that I think that we don't understand yet. And I, and, you know, I think the majority-minority axis, I don't mean to um, overstate this because the numbers of non-Christians who are coming into this country are small, but I think that their cultural impact is, 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 is major. And so you know, to think about how we take for granted that Protestantism or Christianity in general is the sort of default majority car- uh, category for our religious <coughs> life and don't even sort of um, uh, think about the assumptions that are uh, underlying that about how religion, what religion is and, and how people experience it and how they practice it is also something to... Um, that that uh, that is a that is also playing out in this ma- majority minority dynamic. Well, I, you know, let me just comment on the political side of, of this diversity, because it's really uneven across the nation. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really in pockets that are very diverse. There's one out of ten counties are majority minority now, and there's other parts of the nation that aren't as diverse. And how this plays out with immigration and politics is interesting. It used to be there was only ten senators that cared about immigration. Ten. That's five states times two. Now, there may be um, 30 senators who care about immigration. So, it's, so that's a very healthy um, change for our democracy so that Washington, D.C. is paying attention. However, there's an interesting problem with the, the voters out there, and, and some Gallup polls show a strange paradox. Hmm. They show that people who are most afraid about immigration are the people who live in areas with hardly any immigrants. And furthermore, they're not just afraid, they have some weird ideas about immigrants. And I'll just tell you just a couple of them. One is that they're substantially more likely to think that immigrants are welfare dependent and they're coming to America. And the craziest thing is they think that immigrants are not hard workers. If you can imagine that. And the only explanation is they've never seen an immigrant. Right. They've never worked with an immigrant. They don't know anybody. And so it's all imagination, but they get to vote. 
their senators vote. And so this is an interesting problem. How do we educate the people who don't have any experience about what's really up? And that's, that's a challenge for us. Mm-hmm. Let's follow up a little bit on the, this question of um, changing demography, and, and in particular the growing rate of intermarriage. In, in 1903, W.E.B. Du Bois said that the problem of the 20th century would be the problem of the color line. And in 1975, Daniel Patrick Moynihan said that the problem of the color line will be solved in the bedroom. Uh, is the <laughs> and, and the color line that, that I think, uh, in particular, Du Bois was talking about was a, a black-white color line. Some people have predicted that we are in fact now have multiple color lines that are emerging. Other people are arguing that we have a sort of black, non-black color line mm. emerging. What does the change in demography and, and potentially uh, um, intermarriage mean for how the lines are being drawn uh, along color? Yeah. Well, I think mm. that um, you can't just think about it in terms of intermarriage. You also have to think about it in terms of kind of how economic goods are distributed in America. And, um, you know, we've become, as many people have observed, a more unequal society. Um, and I don't see any chance that that's going to ameliorate um, in, in the near future. So I think we're going to face a kind of paradoxical future um, with respect to the color line. We're going to have, um, you know, a kind of middle class and a mainstream that's increasingly diverse. Um, There'll be more and more people of color visible in prominent positions and positions of authority, living in communities with with whites, um, intermarrying. But at the same time, and and I think this is the kind of the really, uh, you know, the most frightening part of American society is that there's going to be a lot of people in poverty and those are going to be overwhelmingly people of color. And so what we're going to have then is a system where the role of the color line is, I think, class contingent. And it is sort of whether you're, you know, you're seen primarily as a minority has a lot to do with your class position, the, the community where you live, the way you present yourself, um, and so forth. And that will be a change. You know, it's but it won't be, you know, the kind of, um, you know, the the sort of elimination of the role of race that we might hope for. I, I you know I don't I don't think that that's very likely in our near future, our far future. That that may be another story. Peggy, color line, dowel color line. I mean, you want to bite? Richard is the expert on that. You, you all have to read his book. <laughs> Learn the color line. I, I, it's a story. title. Come on. <laughs> so we have just a couple minutes left before we uh, invite everyone else to join the conversation. So I want to ask uh, each of our panelists to articulate one thing about immigrant assimilation, integration, incorporation that makes you feel hopeful and one thing that really worries you. Uh, Who do you want to start? start? Yeah. Um, the thing that makes me feel hopeful is that we have a president that looks a little bit more like the country. And the thing that makes me feel worried is that we're still talking about this in a nation state box and acting like cosmopolitanism is a, a luxury rather than a necessity. And that we can sort of talk about assimilation without understanding that assimilation is taking place in a nation that is very much connected to the world and that that's an opportunity because um, immigrants can be the the bridge builders and the diplomats and the translators that we need. Del. 
Well, I've found, uh, I feel like I've discovered this magic upward mobility that immigrants are engaged in that's been overlooked by everybody. And what makes me hopeful is seeing how much longer settled immigrants are becoming in the U.S. They're no longer a bunch of newcomers, but now a bunch of old-timers, or, or at least seasoned veterans. And those people are the ones who are generating all the great benefits that we face, all the, uh, the upward uh, economic um, progress is coming from the established immigrants where the roots are going down. And that trend towards more and more settled immigrants is what really makes me hopeful. I think it's going to generate great dividends and people are going to recognize it and that will turn opinion around, I hope. If only fear I have is one I already espoused, which is the one that we have uh, people who are unauthorized residents and their children, and if they remain in limbo like this, that that is a waste of human resources and it's just a corrosive effect. Um, it, it just will sabotage our society and that, that's what I worry about. You know, for me, that actually, what I guess what makes me feel most hopeful is actually very strongly related to the thing that also I worry most about. And um, I think that we have an un a special period of opportunity ahead of us um, because as the baby boom retires, there are just not going to be enough whites to replace them. I mean, the, the baby boom is heavily white, the most highly educated cohort in American history. If you look at where it's located in the labor market, it's, you know, it's very much concentrated in the, in the sort of best patches, you know, the best paying jobs in the labor market. Over the next 25 years, those people are going to go either feet first or, you know, on, on their own mobility out of the labor market. And they're going <laughs> to, sorry, that's, that's, I guess, a demographer's joke. Huh? Um, uh, so, uh, and so, so, so if America is going to remain economically vital, those people have to be replaced. And they're not going to be replaced, most likely, by, by people who look like them. At the same time, you know, we've become a society that tolerates a lot more inequality of all sorts than we did in the middle of the 20th century when the white ethnics uh, incorporated. And in particular, we've, we've, we've become tolerant of tremendous inequalities in the kind of educations, the quality of schooling um, that young people get. And we see the results of those inequalities when, you know, when we compare, let's say, the college graduation rates of whites against those of blacks and Hispanics. Well, if we don't you know, give the young people coming from minority groups the opportunities to take, to be trained for the well-paying jobs, then not only are they going to be deprived, but our society, I think, will actually fail because we really won't be able to maintain the kind of labor force that has made the United States a major economic power. So the question is, can we be smart, wise about this? Can we see that we really need to invest you know, in minority communities, in young people who are growing up in those communities? And I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer, but... Thank you very much. Why don't we open up the conversation to all of you? Thank you very much for a very interesting discussion. I, I wanted to encourage us in general in the panel to urge us to think more about kind of Professor Levitt's uh, call to think about the problem beyond kind of the nation-state uh, box that we already reported at the beginning. And 
it's very interesting to me to think about the issue of transnational lives. You've called immigrants kind of potentially uh, filling roles of as diplomats or, or ambassadors. And that, that kind of brings us to what I feel is important that we haven't touched in this discussion, that is kind of the connection between immigration policy with foreign policy. And that's, those mm-hmm. seem to be discussions that force us to move, uh, to move up some analytical levels. Uh, and the whole meaning of what do political participation for immigrants mean, for instance, changes completely. Uh, we are dealing also with political transformations going on in host countries that are definitely related to what you call the position and the, the role of the United States in the world. And that role, uh, oftentimes I feel in the panel, we've talked about the role kind of as <coughs> we're dealing with profound inequalities within the country, but it seems that at the geopolitical level we're all the same. And that, as we know, is not the truth. So I, 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 I was wondering if the panelists could reconsider kind of like their hopes and their fears in the sense of how, what is that connection? Like how does the, the changes or lack of changes in the realm of foreign policy pinpoints uh, to what will be uh, the future as well as the challenges that the political participation of immigrants uh, face, both here in the United States, but as you said, across the world, because we're increasingly dealing with transnational social subjects. Can I answer that? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, I am really glad that you asked the question. Um, because I think that um, you know, not only do we have to think about foreign policy as uh, uh, in a broader context, we have to think about development policy in a broader context. So for me, I don't, I don't imagine a world in which we'd be having this conversation and we'd say, let's throw the nation state out the window and we don't really need to be talking about what's happening to immigrants in their daily lives living within this country because that's where they live. But I do hope for a conversation that says, um, you know, people are people have enduring uh, and real and meaningful and productive ties to, that last to uh, another place, and that whatever's going to happen here, whether we care about if we care about immigrant poverty in Chicago, then we have to care about underdevelopment in Mexico. And it's two sides of the same coin, and that we need to start thinking about institutional responses to that that can take that reality into account. Now, you see that happening in Europe in terms of co-development, you know, where the the um, Spanish government is sending money back to Bolivia to try to get Bolivian immigrants not to Bolivians not to migrate to Spain. You know, maybe not the right reasons to do it, but it recognizes that there is a, a connection between these two realities that you know that needs to be really uh, needs to have us rethink our educational policy, our healthcare policy, our foreign policy. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, actually, I'm going to take you up on this a little bit, and. Um, I mean, I guess one hesitation, I have two hesitations about kind of the position uh, that you enunciated. And one is there's not necessarily a kind of correspondence between where immigrants are coming from and the kinds of, and the places in the world that the United States wants to have an impact. I mean, we don't control our immigration policy in that way. And the other is that, um, and Peggy can chime in if she wants to object, but I do see transnationalism as much more an immigrant generation phenomenon than as a second and later generation phenomenon. And I think, I mean, I guess you could envision that it would become a second and later generation phenomenon, but I think it would be hard 
really. It would really take a lot of changes in the way that, uh, that we're organized as a society to, to bring that about. Um, and finally comes the third thing, and it seems to me that, um, and, and your, your example of, of Europe is, is, is critical here, that what we're going to see, I think, in the, next, in the next decades is intense competition among the rich countries for the best immigrants coming from the, th- the third world countries. And so, okay, so maybe Spain is paying Bolivia, you know, not to send more Bolivians, but guess what? Germany would like to get more Indians, yeah. you know, so that they can staff their, their computer industry. And I, I think there are going to be some, <laughs> some real contradictions here if we want to think about the role of immigrants um, and, and foreign policy because of this great competition that's going to exist, especially involving uh, North America and Western Europe for the, 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 the talent of, of other countries. And it's one of the reasons, I think, actually, that the U.S. The U.S. is probably going to try a strategy, and this worries me, of filling the spaces left by the retiring baby boomers with new immigrants. But, but, but I'm not sure it's going to work because everywhere is going to be looking for those immigrants. The Europeans are even more desperate for those immigrants than we are. And there's going to be a kind of bidding war, I, I suspect, among the different rich countries to try to get the Indians and the Chinese and you know, whichever groups turn out to be the, the, kind of the most highly educated to come uh, to their country. So I guess I, I want to say um, I want to make a distinction between foreign policy mm-hmm. and sort of development approaches. Yes, okay. So, um, and, but even still, I think that uh, just like Luis Guarniso has argued about the, the sort of macro level impacts of, of immigrants' microeconomic activities, mm-hmm. I think you can make an argument about <clears throat> immigrants' mac- micro level foreign. You know, they're sort of mini diplomats mm-hmm. in some mm-hmm. ways when they're going back and forth between countries and translating ourselves to each other, and, and, and economically <clears throat> and politically. So I think that's an important role. But I, I, I really do believe that the development implications and mm-hmm. um, you know, thinking about how, thinking about the person who can't pay their rent. Uh, in Boston because they're sending so much money home to uh, the Dominican Republic to help support their family there, or thinking about the person who can't pay their rent in Boston because they're sending so, they're buying, they're, they're building a house in the Dominican Republic. To me, that means that you need to think, you have new measures of class mm-hmm. and new measures of race and, that, and new uh, ways to intervene if you want to improve class status. I agree that the second generation isn't going to um, participate in their ancestral homes in the mm-hmm. same ways as their parents. I've said that many times before, but I do think that you cannot underestimate the power of growing up in a household where there are people and goods and ideas and constant contact with another place. And so you are socialized into those social networks. You are socialized into those uh, ways of being, and if and when you choose to do so, you can go and do business back in India, or you can go and do business back in China, or you can, you know, 
go into business back in Mexico. So I think you're totally right that we're going to have business, uh, you know, countries competing for the best and the brightest, but that we need to take that into account because people are going to want to do business wherever they can do business. And if they've got multiple cultural tools in their pockets, they're going to take them out and use them you know, in combination. I think we need to get away from these false dichotomies of either or or us and them or you know, America or Mexico and see that people are constructing livelihoods uh, using a, a set of tools that orient them to different places at different stages in their lives and that it's not just about the home or the host country, but often it's about where other co-nationals live or where other co-religionists live. So, you know, for, for some people, it's where the Muslim community is and they're going to put their, their development dollars and their development efforts into becoming engineers so they can help Muslim communities. So... Let's get some... We have a question here to your right. Hi, my name is Maria. I'm a graduate student in history, and I wanted to talk about um, cultural assimilation in the second generation because you talk a little bit about the differences that have occurred in the receiving country in terms of uh, changes in immigration law. Not really after 1965. You talk more about 1924 and things like that. And so my question is, what is the role of the civil rights movement in 1965 in reassessing the need for assimilation in the first place as something that um, new immigrants aspire to? And I ask this because a lot of people bring up the example of Obama as a role model for maybe the African-American community to follow as something that they can aspire to. And similarly, I think that for um, second-generation immigrant children, there comes a point where... um, Um, what did I write? Just that, you know, ideas of being a role model for a community that is not yet successful economically mm-hmm. and being able to see themselves in, in the leadership. So do you think that um, assimilation, you know, the need or ideas about assimilation have changed after 1965? And is this a result of ideas of multiculturalism or more persisting feelings of exclusion? Mm-hmm. Your turn. That's a Richard question. Oh, God. Okay. So the short answer is yes, they did change. Um, And I think that um, your pointing to multiculturalism is, you know, is is an important clue. Um, And I think the multiculturalism versus assimilation dichotomy is in some ways a false dichotomy because, in fact, you know, what the way things have changed is that there's been greater recognition given to to the diversity that exists within the mainstream and that in, print, in potential, potentially could exist within the mainstream. So, and, and I'm not sure if I fully understood the rest of the question, so. I just really quickly want to say, like, one example is um, the idea of Spanish language maintenance. Yes. So, this idea, I'm not saying that anybody doesn't want to learn English. I think everybody does. Everybody does want to learn English. That yes, so. you would be able, or that it would be desirable to maintain um, Spanish as a part of being a member of a community that is Spanish-speaking yeah. or being able to help a community that is not mm-hmm. completely fluent in English yet. 
So I, I was just wondering, you talk about changes in immigration law, but not so much other changes in mm-hmm. immigration history that mm-hmm. may have changed mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, ideas about assimilation. Did I might want? actually weigh in here if that's okay. Please, um, please, we've, we're waiting. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I think in some ways the way that uh, we as academics have written about uh, cultural assimilation and especially the second generation has, has missed the mark a little bit. There's a, a new book that has um, come out about the second generation in New York and all the things that we write about, about the second generation being torn between two worlds, growing up in an immigrant household but negotiating a U.S. society and, and this creating a great sense of conflict, they actually find that not to be the case. That in a place like New York, arguably Chicago or the Silicon Valley where I live, there's something quite normal about being second generation. Where I live, the majority of the people in, in Santa Clara County are either immigrants or the children of immigrants. So the notion of diversity, we're kind of beyond diversity. It's just sort of, it's the norm. And so for a lot of the second generation, I think uh, the cultural norm is actually something that they've brought with them, something that their friends are bringing with them, and they're mixing and matching languages and uh, music and uh, food and ways of dressing in all kinds of ways, and speaking sort of about the cultural part. And so I actually think we may have in some way overplayed the idea that there's this sort of um, this uh, this tearing of the immigrant second generation mm-hmm. between the immigrant household and and the rest of American society because in a lot of places in fact the rest of American society looks a lot like them uh, both in terms of generational experience and also in terms of culture so mm-hmm. uh, and that's not everywhere um, but I, I you know I think there's something altogether new that's being created and I'm not trying to be romantic about this here I mean good answer we have a question here in the back. Hi, my name is David Lubin. I'm also a graduate student here. Uh, my question re- is re- related to some of the issues that we've talked about. We've talked a bit about policy and what types of policy outcomes, um, the impact of policy on immigration and, and broader society. We've also talked about um, some, some positive or negative outcomes that could come about. My question relates to the integration of, of immigrants and, and various types of different types of policies that could be implemented. So, for example, a host community and we've alluded to it a bit earlier, might devise different uh, types of reception. We could have uh, a reception in which immigrants are incorporated into the community. Mm -hmm. We could have a reception in which they're reluctantly incorporated into the fringe aspects of the community. Or we could have types of reception in which immigrants might be rejected or or kept to the the outer fringes of a community. And so I'm curious as to the impacts of, of different policy choices that locales might might choose on on integration itself. I may actually take this one too, if that's okay, because I've actually written about integration policy and I actually advocated for it. Um, A a lot of the action in terms of immigration policy uh, recently has been at the local level. Um, You know, we hear a lot about uh, Maricopa County's Sheriff Arpaio and and his sort of zeal to round up immigrants and and send them back. Uh, And we've heard a lot about local ordinances against uh, that that use um, you know housing ordinances to to essentially exclude unauthorized immigrants. But on the flip side of that, there's a lot of immigrant integration policy going on of the sort that Jose Luis Gutierrez has worked for mm-hmm. in the state of Illinois, uh, of the sort that at least they've started to implement in Massachusetts, 
Corzine uh, was trying to implement it in, uh, in New Jersey, or at least sign an executive order in the state of Washington. And then if you look at the local level, where there are uh, immigration, immigrant welcome centers, there's uh, a stepped-up increase to um, find volunteers in the community to teach English language classes uh, in, in Santa Clara County. Uh, we actually have one of the first immigrant integration programs where we have citizenship days every year where there's, uh, you know, they'll, they'll effectively um, uh, do a sort of, you know, Fordist uh, assembly line where they actually help people uh, file their citizenship papers, English language acquisition <coughs> classes, et cetera, et cetera. So I actually think if you, if you zoom down to the local level uh, or even the state level, you'll find that there are a lot, there's a lot of action on the policy front related to immigrant integration and trying to create the, the sort of situation that, um, that our keynote speaker talked about in mm-hmm. terms of um, you know, making a more hospitable place for immigrants and, and immigrants in turn feeling uh, more connected and like they have more of a stake in their, in their local communities. Uh, how effective these policies are, I think, is, is something we don't know systematically, but I think anecdotally uh, they seem effective. I'd like to add to that. Um, it's not policy in a formal way, but I think that different cities mm-hmm. have <coughs> cultural armatures that are more or less conducive to immig- immigrant integration. So, for example, I was involved in a study of immigrant integration in Olympia, Washington, Portland, Maine, and Danbury, Connecticut. And one of the things that we argued was because Portland was going through this kind of re urban reinvention and had this housing stock that was, you know, historic preservation became this kind of art mecca in the downtown Portland, had this, uh, you know, 6,000 people get off a cruise ship every Saturday in the summer to come to Portland. So there were certain aspects of the cultural armature of that community that made it more receptive to immigrants than, say, Danbury, for example. Hmm. So the Latinos in, in Portland, as I happen to know from another study that I'm doing, are all have all been sort of pushed to the outskirts. I mean, they, 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 you know, because of the gentrification, basically, of <clears throat> downtown Portland, they're not really able to live near the places where they work. And in terms of the services that uh-huh. that state, that that city yeah. offers to its residents compared to, I mean, it, it's the city government that's actually mm-hmm. doing all kinds of outreach services to immigrants nice. compared to, <clears throat> say, in Olympia where, where it was all, it was actually colleges yeah. that were doing most uh-huh. of that work. Okay. A question over here to your right. Hi, my name is Cassandra. Um, I'm also a graduate student at um, Loyola University of Chicago in social work. Um, and a lot of the things you've been talking about, about the idea of an ideal assimilation um, and the idea of full access and inclusion, for me, what really, um, I agree with that. And I, what really speaks to me in that area is full access and in- inclusion to education. Um, mm-hmm. And as you were saying, Dal, the, the issue of these um, undocumented students in limbo, um, I'm just curious as to what your thoughts are um, for the opponents who are against the DREAM Act, um, which for some people, I don't know if you're all familiar with it, but um, it, it could you know, be very helpful <coughs> for those students in particular. But I'm just curious as to what you might say to some of those uh, people who think it's you know, something we shouldn't be doing. Well, I'm itching to talk about that one. And then I may offer to Richard, you know, he has a lot to say as well. So the, you know, the Dream Act is aimed at uh, kids who are brought here illegally by their parents and, um, and they don't have authorization to be here. 
and the, 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 there's various versions. There's been state versions, like in California. There's national versions, and it keeps coming back, and it's on hold, and will come back again, possibly as part of immigration reform. And so it's basically a standoff between two oppositional groups. There's the one group that says, you shall not reward lawbreakers. No way, no how. We're going to stand firm here. We're not going to reward lawbreakers. And there's the other group that says, yes, but it's not fair to the children. Immigrant children have rights. And that's the standoff that we have. And um, it's a standoff. But there's a third position, which I advocate, which is... um, have you heard about the baby boomers retiring? <laughs> and have you added up all the facts? And by the way, and this, is a, a, this is a very serious question in California. And by the way, who's going to buy your house? Mm-hmm. And when you look at that, you realize we had these precious children who have proven themselves to be good kids, who have been successful in school. And in the DREAM Act, they would um, go to college or serve in the military, a couple different things. And, and they're a good character, and you would throw them away? We need them more than ever, and they're, they're here to help us more than we need to help them. I mean, it's really, it's to, our, it's to the majority's benefit. That's, and, but that argument hasn't been played that way. It's been more the standoff between rights versus uh, forcing the law, and that's just a, a standoff. But I think in political terms, um, that the DREAM Act has been caught up in the tortured politics of immigration reform, and uh, probably if it were put to a congressional vote today, it would easily pass. Um, but, in fact, it's the supporters of immigration reform who right now are holding the DREAM Act back to be a part of the co- comprehensive package of immigration reform. And I have to say that I really think it's a mistake that, um, you know, I think, A, that we're not likely to get comprehensive immigration reform in the very near future because, in some sense, it's been made clear that, you know, that the Obama agenda is going to be very difficult to uh, implement uh, in Congress. Um, And um, I fear, you know, that if the 2010 election brings Republican gains, which which I think is very likely, then, in fact, we may even lose, you know, the majority that would support the DREAM Act. And, you know, I... I think it's really important to give young people a reason, a reason to hope. Um, and, I, you know, I, I, I really think we should, you know, the immigration su- reform supporters should allow the DREAM Act to go forward now when it can be passed, when it will be signed, um, because it's, it's really important for young, the young people who are undocumented. So. We have a question here to your left. I'm taking the last question of the evening. Uh, however, I know we, we still had questions. Uh, our panelists will be at our reception to answer further questions, so please join us down the hall to your left. You're letting this guy ask a question? Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're going to hold this in my mouth, okay. Uh, I don't know if I can ask a question like that. I'm Ramon, my, my sympathies, yeah. Um, I want to thank the panel for really an incredible job of illuminating so many aspects of a very complex issue. One of the features that I really enjoyed is the emphasis on economic opportunity as being a critical part of our ability to integrate, assimilate, incorporate immigrants in the future. My question is, has to do with an uncomfortable juxtaposition of facts um, from the 1940s. And I think it's first to Richard, who I think thought about this when he was writing his book. Mm-hmm. But it's really for all of you. And that is this. If um, 
if we as a society want to pursue greater economic equality, mm -hmm. the high point of economic equality mm -hmm. in this country mm -hmm. was the 1940s. Mm -hmm. The 1940s was also the moment of dramatically shrunken immigration right. to the United States. How do you think about that juxtaposition? Is it coincidental, irrelevant, or is it something that we have to consider? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I can't say that I've thought about it exactly in those terms, Gary, um, but I certainly see where your question comes from. Um, and I'm not sure I have a good answer. Of course, you know, immigration restriction occurred in the 20s, and, and what followed from the 20s was not, in fact, a period of economic prosperity. And so it's, it's un... I think we'd have to think about sort of what's the what are the what are the mechanisms that might link these two, and what are the other factors that might in fact have contributed to what e economic historians call you know the great the, the great income compression. Certainly, the power of unions was an important part of that. Now, you might argue, I suppose, that unions gained in power because they were not being undercut by fresh new immigrant workers who were coming in. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking on my, not on my feet, I guess on my <laughs> rear end at the moment. Um, uh, I, I don't have an immediate answer. So I'm going to turn it over to my colleagues yeah. to answer. Well, I, I, I'll take a, a, a spin at that. Um, there's several things going on in that time period, and it's not a one-to-one -one correlation with, with immigrants. But I will point out that at that moment, the, the immigrants in America were here, were long settled. And what you had in the 1970s was an upsurge in new arrivals. New arrivals had much higher poverty rates than settled immigrants. After 10 mm -hmm. years' time, poverty drops by a third for new immigrants. And the next 10 years, it drops by another quarter or so. So uh, you, know, you would have greater numbers of poverty from the immigrant population early on. We're now entering a period of, of more mature, settled immigra immigration. And, and, those, and that should lead to greater um, e equality in income distribution if it were not for other things. And the other things, I think, might well uh, trump um, the immigration factor. Hmm. One of which was the rise of two-earner couples, middle-class two-earner couples. They broke the bank on everybody else. That's part of the, the, the inequality is there's too many college-educated two-earner couples. In this room, there's some of those. <laughs> And they earned much more in their families than it, it wasn't like that in the 1940s. And so it was, it was more like one earner per, per family. Uh, along with the unions, I would, I would point that, that social demographic change as well. There's also the growing uh, educational achievement in America. The college education mm -hmm. becomes far more common after 1950 and after 1960. And those people are earning more. So I would want to go back to, say, less education for everybody so we could be more equal. I think we have to figure out how to bring the bottom up. Yeah. Because we need all hands on deck mm -hmm. when the baby boomers retire. Everybody needs to be performing at the middle class level, or else I'm not going to be able to sell my house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, it, okay. So yeah, I should have answered the question that I wanted to answer rather than your question. But I'm going to take a, my lead from from Dell for just one point, and that is that another thing that characterizes the 40s and the 50s is a tremendous invest. Well, no, it's a tremendous investment in in education, and that you see particularly in the expansion of the post-secondary system, which you know, literally grew fivefold between 1940 and 1970, and also witnessed you know, the 
either the creation or the expansion of many public higher educational systems. So it was really government investment in education that more than anything created the opportunity then for the second and the third generations of the immigrant groups of that period to, to move up. I mean, there are other big factors, too, I'll just mention two, that, that aren't terribly sexy. But mechanization, where, you know, you have jobs that used to require people that don't require people anymore. Um, and that, quite simply, has uh, shifted the emphasis in the labor market to, from mm-hmm. brawn to brains. And then uh, offshoring. I mean, we, you know, mm-hmm. the labor market is now international. And so people aren't just competing for jobs uh, with immigrants who are coming here. They're competing for jobs uh, with people in other Vietnam and Mexico and China. And it's not just those kind of bra- uh, brawny jobs anymore. Also, it's the brainy jobs, too. If you go to my brother's high-tech company, people in finance are really freaked out because they're shipping all the finance jobs to India because there are people in India who can do those brainy jobs a lot more cheaper than, a lot cheaper than we can do it here. So, so there are lots of factors at play. So the, the economic situation is totally different. The educational system is totally different. So, okay, what are we going to do about it? And so then I would think about the, the old book, The Sea Change. Do you remember that book? It was about the ideas that all the European immigrants, refu- war refugees who came over, the intellectuals and academics who came over to the United States and how they sort of trans- brought all these transformative, entrepreneurial, innovative cultural change ideas with them. So, so in other words, we're doing them. the right thing by, by going into multiple wars because we're going to create <laughs> refugee streams no, no, that no, come no, to no. the United States. No, 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 that okay. isn't what I had in mind. <laughs> no. so, is, I think Loud is signaling that it's, that it's time yeah. for some wine and hors d'oeuvres. Yes, okay. Before yes. we break, though, I want to thank the panelists. Uh, join me in thanking the panelists. Join me in thanking uh, Sokolo Public Square, the staff that was incredibly organized in putting this together, our technical crew, our bloggers, our photographers, Mm -hmm. our interviewers, our microphone holders and moderators. So join me in thanking Sokolo. Thank you.